Um, my name is Melissa. I'm on staff. If you guys don't know me, pretty sure most people do, but just saying. Also, money, Mama Money Begs. Yep. Uh, tonight, in our series on joining God's story, we're going to be looking at the last biblical character that we're studying in our series. Spoiler alert, it's Paul. Um, yeah, so let's get the Bibles passed around. If you guys need a Bible or you need a journal or a manual, some guys will call it manual, so you know, so you have one of those. I've never really been a guy, but I heard it one time. Um, just put your hand up and try. Okay, as we get going, can I just confess that I was like super intimidated to be assigned Paul for who I'm teaching on right now? Because of all the peeps whose stories are told in the Bible, Paul is probably who I fangirl for the most. <laughs> of course, I love Jesus like the most, most, most. Like he's the only one who is God. But when it comes to like regular humans who are like saved by Jesus, who become spiritual studs, who just like get stuff done in their lifetime, Paul is like who I admire the most. So it's low-key intimidating to talk about one of the most influential humans in Christian history and, and, and one of the most influential people in the Bible. But there's so much for us to unpack about his story, about how God called Paul to join his story, to join God's story. Um, so let's just dive right in. Um, I'm just letting you guys know as we go through the message tonight, there's three kind of parts to structure our talk. So the first part is transformation, second is identity, and third is mission. I'll tell you when we switch, but I'm, some note takers have to know that ahead of time, so I'm hoping it goes out. Okay, the first is transformation. So rhetorical question, what do you assume about Paul's origin story? Or about anyone who's like an influential, awesome Christian leader nowadays? I think sometimes we assume that they're like this special class of Christians, like, they probably, you know, heard, like, Bethel in the womb. They were, like, you know, just, like, had, like, a perfect life or just, like, this, like, track of, like, learning so much uh, from an early age. Or at least they're, like, different than us or special than us in a lot of ways. Like, they're these, like, special humans, and I'm, like, normal. At least that's how I think sometimes. So where do we meet Paul in the pages of the Bible for the first time? We first meet him in Acts chapter 7, verse 58. And Acts 7, 58 through 8, 1, those verses, we meet him at the scene of the murder of Stephen. So Stephen was this amazing follower of Jesus. Like, extra credit, check it out. Just read Acts 6 and 7. Stephen's the bomb.com. He's, like, so full of the Holy Spirit. He's performing signs and wonders to bring Jesus glory. And the religious leaders decided, nope, got to stop this. And they tried a bunch of ways. They had to resort to executing him by stoning which is where they, like, throw giant rocks on you until you extremely, like, die. Um, and we see in verse 58 of chapter 7, the executioners laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Spoiler alert, that's origin story Paul. So whether this meant that he was actually overseeing the execution, like, in charge of it, or if he was just there as a significant member, we first meet Paul when he's involved in killing Jesus' followers. Definitely not the way that I expected to meet him in the story when I first heard about Paul. But then, as we keep going through the Bible, um, Acts chapter 9, just a whole chapter later, tells this amazing story. So you guys turn there with me, and we're going to read Acts 9, verses 1 through 31. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. That's just an intense opening verse. I'm just going to say that for the record. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any people there who belonged to the way following Jesus, whether men or women, he could take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. 
As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sounds, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, I probably took a lot of courage. Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you might see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch of the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, wonder why, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. What a story, just in these, like, 32 verses. Saul experienced an incredible transformation, you guys. That's literally what happened to him and what happens to all of us who begin following Jesus. We go from being dead to being alive, from going one direction uh, to, like, the complete opposite direction. That was for you, Matthew, then. Becoming a literally, like, a new creation. Saul used to forcefully argue against Jesus, and now he starts going out of his way to debate in synagogues every chance he gets that Jesus is, is in fact, king and Messiah and God. We see him doing that, like, all throughout the rest of the book of Acts, you guys. Every chance he gets, he would seek every opportunity to share the news that Jesus is king. And since Paul is a huge player through a lot of the book of Acts, I'm just going to, like, summarize 
some of what happens from chapter 9 onwards in the story. So as the beautiful book of Acts marches on from here, it spends a chapter or two focusing on Peter as Peter realizes the amazing truth from God that it's not only the Jews who are included as God's people. In fact, the gospel was meant to save non-Jews as well, like the Gentiles, everybody who's not a Jew. And he realizes that, it, that in fact, God's original design was to reconcile all people to himself, which was just mind-blowing and game-changing for everyone at the time. And then Saul's story resumes, and we see in Acts 11, 25 to 26, is where I spotted him again. Um, so Barnabas goes down to Tarsus to look for Saul, and he brings him to Antioch. And for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. During this time, this is the first time anybody was called a Christian, which just meant those belonging to Jesus. And then we see Saul begin being referred to as Paul. So Saul was his original Hebrew Jewish name, and then his later name Paul was a Roman, Hellenistic, or Greek in background sort of name. So it was kind of customary for people at that time to have that Jewish Hebrew given name, but then to maybe take on a, a Greek name or a Roman, Roman name. And the shift in Acts when Saul starts going as Paul could also show us that the mission of God, that God gave him, like we read um, when God was telling Ananias the game plan, um, that Paul's mission was to be able to share the gospel to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. So he probably started going by his Roman name for that. And speaking of bringing the good news to the Gentiles, we see Paul going on lots of missionary journeys. Acts 12, 25, chapter 13, chapter 14, tons of the way until chapter 28, the very end of Acts, the very end of the book. We see Paul's epic journeys taking the gospel to the Jews and the Gentiles and making God's mysteries known to everybody he can, every chance he gets. And he does a lot of things. Just summarizing, he's preaching in synagogues. He ministers by the power of the Holy Spirit. He preaches intelligently and passionately. He helps a lot of people believe in Jesus. He gets a lot of death threats from the Jewish leaders. And he escapes three sneaky ways like through holes and walls. And I would like to see how that worked, but, you know, he worked. Um, he builds up a lot of new churches that are planted all over the Roman Empire because the gospel is spreading like crazy in this time. People are coming to Jesus in the thousands, like, and he's trying to build up these new churches and teach these new rookies how to follow Jesus, even though he's kind of a rookie himself. He's a very wise rookie. And so he became a highly respected leader in the network of churches at that time, right, which is probably why you can imagine he wrote most of what we have as our New Testament, um, letters instructing these baby Christians how to live a new set-apart life how to wisely operate in the world as they now live for Jesus, and they're now fulfilling God's mission in their context. And like I said, he went on different missionary journeys around the world. You guys might remember, I think it was Timmy's message last week, um, he, he read in Acts 1 where Jesus told his disciples right before Jesus left earth, he ascended to heaven, and he said, guys, wait in Jerusalem to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, be filled with power from on high, and this gospel must be preached in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So it's like, tiny, like, city, it's probably a big city, but the place where they are, bigger area, bigger area, biggest area you can go without a spaceship. And we see Paul literally doing this throughout the book of Acts. He takes the gospel beyond Jerusalem and Judea to the ends of the earth. He finds intelligent ways to reach people, like I said, and share Jesus. And he goes through a lot of stuff, you guys. Like, sometimes I feel like I have a bad day, but Acts 14, he was stoned, which literally mean, usually kills you pretty good. But when his executioners walk away, they're, like, pretty confident he's dead. I mean, they've probably done this a time or two before, I'm guessing. And then he just miraculously is healed and gets back up. And is he like, I'm going to Disneyland. I'm taking the Sabbath. He goes right back into the city and resumes preaching, the same city he just was, like, thrown out of and stoned from. How baller is that? 
Though the real question is, what transformation took place in his life to make this guy go from overseeing the stoning of Jesus' followers to now being stoned himself, but then marching right back into the same city he was just thrown out of to preach some more? Chapter 16, he's in prison, and he is in prison several times. He's kind of a pro. I don't know if that's right to say it. Anyways. Um, he's arrested. He's on trial. Hands out like a champ. Shares the gospel in a lot of different cool ways. Basically, we just read Acts is all I'm saying. Um, he's shipwrecked. He spends his time in prison. And while he's there chilling, he writes, like, the letters that are some of my favorite pages of the Bible, like Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. He's penning letters to those churches that he's, like, been teaching and helping instruct and teaching them the right way. And then as we wrap up the book of Acts, the very last verse in Acts tells us Paul's preaching under Roman guards. So he's got this, like, big Roman guard. Could have been small Roman. I don't know. It, a Roman guard, whoever's qualified. Um, he's chained to him. They're, like, chained together. And in the very last verse of the book, it says, He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Even in chains, he was not hindered teaching and sharing about Jesus. Talk about a 180. Talk about just a huge U-turn, going his origin story to, like, superhero apostle. But by that, I just mean he is a guy radically changed by Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he just goes full send to letting Jesus use his life in an amazing way. So what are some takeaways for us from Paul's transformation story? I got three for us to check out. Number one is don't ever underestimate God's abundant grace and transforming power for you or for anybody else. Don't underestimate God's transforming power for you or for others. Think about your life for a sec. Is there something that you're not sure God could set you free from? Something you're not sure God could actually heal or make new in your life? Look again. This is a God who turns murderers into missionaries. This is a God who raises the dead back to life. There's nothing too big or too small for him to personally attend to. What do you need to have faith for God to do in your life tonight? Second takeaway is no one is too far gone for God to save. Paul literally says about himself that he was the worst of all sinners. 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16 is when he says that. He says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Like, guys, this is true. Listen up. Um, or what do you guys say? Facts. He's like, facts. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom, <laughs> stop laughing, you're making people hold me. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul says, I was the worst of sinners, but check out how much glory Jesus gets through my life. He gets to show off his patience and his, his saving power through me because I was like the farthest gone that any human could be. So guys, no matter what you've ever done, no matter how far away from Jesus' way you've ever been, you are not too far for him to reach and save and make completely new. That's actually his specialty. Jesus like super specializes in making us new, healing us, setting us free. He's God. Jesus made Paul a new creation, and we can see from Acts all the way to Hebrews what God did through Paul's transformed life. What could he do for your, through your life if you went all in? If you gave him 100% control, what could Jesus do through your life? How can you say yes to going all in, full set and following Jesus? How could he use you to make disciples and change this world? Third takeaway from Paul's transformation that I thought of. So we talked about how nobody's too far gone 
on the flippity-flop side, nobody is too cool or too elite or too talented or, like, exempt from Jesus drafting us into missionary service. Nobody is too, like, special, um, like, for Jesus to not urge our hearts to volunteer to serve him. One time when Paul's talking to the church in Philippi, and by that I mean writing the letter, um, he shares his testimony, kind of his resume, and the things that he used to put confidence in as a person before he met Jesus. And that's in Philippians 3, 4 through 14. I'll read it for you guys because it's a little long. So Paul says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If somebody else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to law, he's a Pharisee. As for zeal, he was persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, he was faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that's through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already attained this, guys, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet having taken a hold of it. I'm not there yet, he's saying. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So Paul's explaining to them that in his day, his resume was basically unbeatable. He had climbed so highly in the, in the Jewish religious leadership ranks at such a young age, probably because he had a super legit resume. He was the man. In terms of human society, he was highly, highly qualified. But then he met Jesus, the real, like, best man. And he instantly cashed in all those human achievements and all those qualifications that were working for him on earth. And he counted all of that garbage, and all he wanted was to be with Jesus. What changed in this guy? I think the key is in verse 8. He says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. The worth of knowing Jesus is infinitely better than the worth of anything else we have going for us or any of our marketable qualities or our stack of achievements. This surpassing glorious worth made him want to just give it all up to simply know Jesus and be used by him however Jesus wanted to use his life. Have you met Jesus in a way like that? Have you discovered a surpassing worth in Christ that totally exceeds any other pressure or pleasure or influence in your life? I don't think that Paul's saying it's bad to have a resume or to build up marketable skills. It, I do think he's saying those pursuits shouldn't bottleneck or hinder our willingness to accept whatever call King Jesus speaks over our life. Pursuing those things shouldn't be the main focus in our life that keeps us from following Jesus. And in Paul's words, maybe our resume or career goals shouldn't be so precious to us that we can't readily surrender them to Jesus if he asks us. So Paul models what I call garbage mode on one end of the spectrum, where we come to love Jesus so much, those other things just seem like literally worthless compared to Jesus. We count him as garbage. On the very other extreme, I'm calling it Gollum mode. 
if we're Gollum mode and we're like holding our precious achievements and our goals back from Jesus, that's probably a problem. We're tragically missing out. If we're over here, we're like living a very starved, nasty life. Uh, nasty. Um, nasty offices. But like if we're over here, we like know Jesus so much. I'm going to stay on my notes right now. We know Jesus so much that those things are just worthless. Like, it's, it, I always say it's like bigger or better with Jesus. We're like literally always trading up. It's like we let something go, but we're like, oh my gosh, why did I think that was the best? Now I have the best. Have you discovered that in your life? I'm sure every one of you guys and me, like we all have different skills that are marketable in the world. I'm sure you have qualities and capabilities that are as unique as you are. And those can be incredible tools for Jesus to use. But are you trusting in those are you placing your identity and security in those? Or are you willing to lay it all at the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, use me, speak to me. I'll do whatever you ask me to do, my king. Do you think that you're exempt from being drafted into Jesus' missionary service? I'm not saying that everybody is called to be an overseas missionary for life. Like, I'm not saying that's the only calling or the best calling. But I, I have noticed sometimes we subconsciously or consciously forge our own draft exemption notice. Like, sorry, Jesus, I'm on the injured reserve. <laughs> like, I can't come. Um, it could be because of our past, because of our personality, because of our plans, our priorities, or a self-image that's either way too low or way too high. Do you somehow assume that you're not a qualified candidate or that you're somehow exempt from Jesus calling you to do whatever he asks you to do? I'm just asking that question tonight, not because I have people in mind, just because occasionally a few of us think that way. And so if that's you, I would just challenge you to wrestle with that tonight. Have you already counted yourself out? Like, if there's ever a call for missionaries like Johnville mentioned tonight, like, that's not me. I would just challenge you to wrestle with that tonight because I love you. I want you to be in a posture of full surrender before our fully good king. And graciously let him lead your life however he wills. So lay down whatever is lesser and come to know the surpassing worth that's only in Jesus. That's ultimately the life of a disciple. So are you fully surrendered? Will you lay down your assumptions of the future, lay down all your walls and preconceived notions, and just let him transform you? Just go all in, full send. Let him craft your identity and lead you in, in mission and join his story. Second part about Paul is his identity. So one of the reasons that I found myself getting a Bible crush on Paul in college was because... <laughs> I don't know about your term. He seemed just like rock solid in his identity. I remember my senior year of college, man, I was falling in love with Jesus more than ever that year. I was, I was so single. I wrote date with Jesus every morning on my calendar. I can't decide if that's cute or sad, but it was really good for my God times. <laughs> so <laughs> I said like date with Jesus on my calendar. And I just spent hours in the morning when my roommates were, were gone reading my Bible and journaling and just soaking in Jesus' presence. And I want to be able to get back to doing that today. It's the best use of the time. And I remember this one morning, I, I was feeling good. I was like, got a good breakfast, got my coffee. The sun is shining for once in Bellingham. Let's go. I'm going to read all of Romans today. I was like, let's go. I'm going to read all of Romans. Buckle up. So I turned. I was ready to soak in all of Romans in one go. And two hours later, when it was time to go to class, I had gotten through precisely one verse. Romans 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God one verse, and yet it was this inexhaustible depth of richness for me to mine. This is like Paul's identity statement to this church he's writing to, how he identifies himself at the start. He says, I'm a servant of Jesus. I'm called to be an apostle. I'm set apart for the gospel of God. 
as a college student who is seeking to figure out who the heck am I supposed to be, seeking God's direction for my future in every single way, job, relationships, where on earth am I supposed to live, that verse just like met me. It was like a rock-solid foundation for my shaky, overthinking brain to just rest on and chill and be grounded on and, and get sorted out. Paul, a servant of Jesus, was I willing to be solely and primarily identified as a servant of Jesus? I journaled pages off of that third of that verse, wrestling through what do I place my identity in, thinking about the gospel, thinking about what Jesus has done in my life, and what really has eternal value that I could spend this tiny little blink of life on anyway on this planet. I came to be like, yeah, I could say I'm Melissa, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, a sent one for the gospel, somebody on mission for Jesus. That makes sense. If my identity is a servant of Jesus, I'm called to be sent out of that truth and mission and that living story. So I looked up, what does it mean to be an apostle and what that was like? And I journaled pages about that too. My hand probably hurt. I just wanted to quiet all those competing voices about my identity and, and my priorities and just narrow my focus on what does Jesus say? What does he want me to be and to do? And I sensed he was calling me to also be a sent one, carrying the gospel to others and building up his church. Sent, set apart for the gospel of God. We talked about being set apart last quarter, right? Like what being holy means. So rather than this default pile of everything normal, common, everything the culture would expect, something is plucked out and set apart for different use, special use, not common use. So rather than just my life serving a default American corporate rat race, what if I was set apart for the gospel? What would that look like? Well, that would transform my priorities in every job I would ever have. doesn't mean I can't go to American corporate life, but I'm going to be so different in my priorities and, and how I go about that. That would transform my purpose and bring clarity that this world just doesn't give us. That would set me free from so many of the ties that this world piles on because I know I'm not living for that stuff. Everything about myself and my life is set apart for a different kingdom, a different purpose, a different gospel, the gospel of Jesus. So Paul discovered his identity through meeting with Jesus, the one who saved him and transformed him and just radically changed his life. Knowing his identity and his calling helped him know, what do I say yes to? What do I say no to? How do I conduct myself in every situation that I'm in? Paul seemed to know that because he lived so effectively. How can you and I figure out our identities in a way that's this clear? What ways do you need a clear sense from Jesus on who you are, who he is, and how he's calling you to join his story? One option um, for part of our application tonight is um, on this point is I brought some copies of a personal mission statement guide. Some are pink, some are white, depending on how you feel about pink, choose accordingly. Um, but I wanted them to like be obvious what they were. So there's some here and then some in the back table. Um, and I made one of these for myself in college and Tony and I made one when we started getting married, well, right before we got married. Um, <laughs> And it really helped me figure out who I am and, and who I want to be and what I'm living for. And this narrowed my priorities. Um, and, and I thought, since Paul is such a good model for us of knowing your identity and your mission and everything, um, it could be helpful for some of us if you want to go through this. It doesn't take too long, maybe an hour, like in a God time or something, or you can do it in a one-on-one. -on -one. Um, it's totally optional, but I just recommend you sometime think about who, what's your identity? What is Jesus saying about you? Um, and then how do you want to live accordingly? Third point for Paul is his mission. So Paul's transformation and newfound identity led him to be crystal clear about his life mission. We see through reading Acts 12 chapters all the way through 28, and we see it through the strong heartbeat leaping off the pages in all of the books he wrote, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 
Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, it's really not bad to show for doing time in prison. Um, he wrote a lot of stuff that's in our Bible. He spells it out clearly so many times what his mission is from Jesus. And one of my favorite part places that he says it is in Romans 15, as he's wrapping up this amazing letter to the Romans. And in Romans 15, uh, 15 through 21, he says, I have written you quite boldly on some points, mood, to remind you of them again. Because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, he gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles, not the non-Jews, might become an offering acceptable to the souls. Acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I won't venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, remember, gospel goes out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and here. From Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Paul says, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who are not told about him will see. Those who have not heard will understand. So Paul's mission from Jesus was to be ambassador, an ambassador of, of Jesus, a sent one to the Gentiles. Paul longed to travel wherever, wherever God would direct him to go in the world to preach to places that hadn't heard about Jesus yet. Some of the other apostles and disciples, they were like staying more local for their ministry. They were organizing the growing community of Jesus followers, like the church. Like I said, it was growing like crazy. They were trying to organize these churches, give them structure, pay you dues of deacons, you can help your widows. Like they're trying to help all those important things. That's a really important job. But also God's story compels us to share the gospel with those who aren't in Rome, aren't in Tarsus or wherever we are for Paul or, or aren't in Washington. There are important jobs to be done here, but if everybody stays here, logically, nobody in the Middle East or in Southeast Asia or in Islamic parts of Africa, etc., are going to hear the name of Jesus. So if everybody stays and nobody goes, nothing's going to change for those places. And that's the difference, I think, between lost people and unreached, unreached people groups. So people who don't know Jesus here at, at Central, they have lots of chances to bump into Christians in the circle or tabling or being invited to something by their coworker, if they ever get coffee, Sammy's probably invited them to Chi Alpha. <coughs> they can find a Bible at Goodwill. They can find a sermon online. There are lots of ways to hear about Jesus in their everyday life. They're still lost, but they have all those different options for access in this life, that they, like in their everyday life is what I'm saying. Unreached people groups are very different. There are no or so few believers in their entire culture or language group that they're super unlikely to ever bump, in, bump into somebody who can tell them about Jesus let alone find a Bible in their language or, or find one of those resources. So their whole ethno-linguistic community has yet to be penetrated by the gospel and sent ones of Jesus. So all are equally lost in both scenarios. All are equally lost, but not all have equal access to the gospel. And if none of us go to those unreached people groups, nothing will change and we'll keep living and dying and spending eternity away from Jesus, never knowing him. So I'm saying this because Paul's mission, we can't talk about Paul and ignore that his mission was to the unreached. Um, his mission, he paved the way for a lot of us today as we keep joining God's story. We grab that baton and we figure out how are we going to share Jesus with the farthest reaches of our planet today. And I love how Paul describes this logically. His logic is just like on point. Um, in Romans 10, 13 through 15, I can keep it on the screen. Um, 
He says, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one they have not heard of? And how can they hear without somebody preaching to them? How can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. So this is awesome, but also confusing. So if you like flip his logic around and reverse engineer it, Paul's saying, if a missionary is sent, they can go to people who don't know Jesus. Those people can hear about Jesus for the first time and have a chance to believe. If, if they do believe in Jesus, they can call on him. And if they call on him, they can be saved. But none of that can happen without people being sent to go away from their home, away from what's comfortable and familiar, and go on mission with Jesus to reach the unreached. So my question for us tonight, every chance I get to talk about this, is are, are you willing to go? Am I willing to go? Are you full send, surrender to Jesus, wherever he wants you to go, whatever he wants to do in your life? Or are you holding back in any particular way? Again, not all of us are supposed to up and move to the unreached for the long term necessarily. But I do think Paul would say, and I think Jesus would compel us to join his story and to do a, a significant role in helping the mission of God reconcile people all over the world. That's all of our job. And for all of us, we've got to start with understanding the importance of reaching the unreached. And I think each of us have to face the uncomfortable question, am I willing to go? Am I willing to do whatever Jesus calls me to do? Stay in Ellensburg, move to Seattle, move to Minnesota, move to Indonesia or India or Oman, and have my life be oriented around Jesus' one mission. And in Kaiafa, we have a saying about missions. John Bill has mentioned this earlier. I didn't know he was going to say that, by the way. This was like printed hours ago. Um, but he says, every student goes, we say, every student goes, every student gives, every student prays, every student welcomes. And personally, I think this is a really holistic way of thinking about how each of us, no matter our particular gifting or calling or whatever, can partner in bringing the gospel to people all over the world. It's not like a flip switch, on, off, I'm a missionary or I'm not. Um, like I often said, you're either a mission field or a missionary. Like we all have a role in being missionaries together as the church. So I'm just going to march through these four briefly as we wrap up tonight. First one is every student goes, going. That's what we were just talking about as I was asking, are you willing to go? Um, I would honestly encourage, personally, I would encourage everybody to go overseas at least once in their life to see a different culture and how people somewhere very different than here live and think and believe. If you find believers there, to see how they love Jesus, the same God, in, in some similar and some really different ways um, that make us see how God is so much bigger than our little tiny Chris Tomlin, like, white or, you know, American version of, of him. Um, like, it, to help us see how much bigger Jesus and his church is around the world. To have your heart grown and broken in ways that can only really happen when we leave our culture for a little bit. Um, even if you s go for two weeks and then stay in America forever for your job, like, that's awesome. I, I've been just saying, I personally think it's so worthwhile to have your worldview change, to be more global and more holistic than what we get when we just stay in our culture and never leave it. Even if you just go for a week um, or, like, a month or give a year, pray about a lifetime, like we often say, are you willing to go whenever, wherever, to whoever God asks you to go? Second one is giving. This is another huge way, guys, that we can partner in the gospel because going takes cash monies if you've ever driven a car or flown a plane. It takes resources. And personally, again, this is a personal thing, I think it's healthy for every single believer to be involved in supporting missionaries because Jesus said, where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. And I remember the first time I started supporting a missionary, I was in college. My friend Weston Stover, when I was in college, he became a full-time missionary with Chi Alpha at WSU, and then he moved on to Africa. Um, and I started supporting him at $50 a month because that's what I felt God was asking me to do in faith. And it was like, 
both reasonable for my budget with my job and parents helping, and it was also sacrificial for my budget. That was like the sweet spot for me. I decided I could turn back a little bit extra spending to support him as a missionary, and man, God grew my heart for missions through that. Giving sacrificially and generously, reading his monthly newsletters and praying for those requests, it knit my heart to the work of God in Pullman and then in Africa and around the world. I'm so glad I did that. So I would really challenge each of you, like honestly, start building a habit now that you can only grow as you get older and graduate and get fancier, fancier jobs or whatever. Don't wait to build habits until you graduate and X thing or Y thing might happen in your life so you're like ready. Start now. I'm not saying everybody can be $50 a month. Maybe you can be $2 a month. Like literally, if you can be $2 a month or $5 a month, I'm just saying I would personally encourage you to think about that. But Carol didn't ask me to say this. I'm just saying. <laughs> I would encourage you to think about that because it'll do so much more in your heart and through your sacrificial gift than you can even fathom. And if you get better and fancier jobs as you get older, how much more can you help advance the gospel by sending more missionaries um, in the future? My pal Meredith, um, let me tell you positive things. Um, Mayor Mary has some amazing stories of some of her fellow interns in Virginia who, after they graduated, they got like super legit high-paying government jobs when they graduated, and they said that they wanted to fully send another of their friends. Like, I think it was like four guys. They were like, three of them were like working hardcore, and then they sent one. And those guys who had like six-figure salaries, they didn't live on six-figure salaries. They lived like they were still college students, and they gave, and they gave to help this three guys supported one missionary to an unreached people group. Um... And they had this motto that I might butcher, but Mary can fix it, of when they started making more money, that we're not going to increase our standard of living, we're going to increase our standard of giving. And people in that community at UVA, they're like doing work for the kingdom because they have learned how to sacrificially send missionaries like crazy. And I, it just blew me away to say, uh, to, to read about, um, and challenged me to be more sacrificial and generous with money every single year of my life. Um, and so I'm just saying that because this is a really key thing for all of us um, in the church to consider. And somebody said we have those, those prom prayer faith promise cards. That was the horriblest way ever to say that. We have those faith promise card thingies. Um, so shout out to those because that makes it timely that you can actually start tonight if, you, if God's like put it on your heart and grab one of those and turn it in or do the website thingy that I don't know how to do, but it's like on Sailing Center. Um, I'm just saying this because as we where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. And Jesus is going to do so much for that partnership. Okay, the very last two um, were super short on time, so I'm not going to preach an entire message on prayer because I've done it before. Um, so I'm just going to invite the worship team up to pray, or nope, to do to like get ready as we close. And I'm going to just briefly go through the last two. <coughs> so prayer, like John will actually mentioned, praying for people all around the world to come to know Jesus and for unreached people groups, that's one of the coolest and lowest effort, <laughs> like ways that we can change the world from wherever we are. While you're walking to class tomorrow, you can pray for students in Jogja. Did I say it right? Anyway, sorry. He can fix it. In Indonesia, to come to know Jesus, we can pray for unreached people groups everywhere as we're just walking. Um, we can pray for missionaries and encourage them in the spiritual battles they're facing right that second. And, and God can start to, to change it amazingly. Um, the one app that I recommend that I use is the Unreached, Unreached of the Day app from the Joshua Project. That one is so good. It gives you a different people group that you've never probably heard of every day to learn about their stats, what they struggle with, what they value, and to, like, be able to pray for them. And it can grow our heart for Jesus to be glorified in every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And then the last one of welcome, when we discover the nations, ETN. Supposed to, like, yeah, thank you. <laughs> so welcoming just means, like, the international students that come from all over the world right here to our campus. We have an incredible opportunity, you guys, to love them and, and share Jesus with them and build friendships. 
a lot of them come from countries that don't have very much access to learning about the gospel, and they come here, and we can become their friends and be able to share the Lord with them. And in the next couple of years, my dream, one of my dreams is that our ministry would get stronger and stronger at welcoming international students, that we could even have an international student in every core, that we're loving and befriending and, and leading to Jesus. I would love to see us join in, in that story in that way. So as we close tonight, here are the two questions that I love for us to journal about that kind of sum up what we talked about for Paul's story tonight. First one is, have you fully surrendered and given Jesus 100% control of your life? Are you full send? Are you all in? Have you discovered that surpassing worth of knowing him that makes you want to sacrifice everything? Are you fully surrendered? And the second question, which is, how is Jesus calling you to go, give, pray, and welcome? So let's journal about those for a few minutes, and then the worship team will lead us in responding to Jesus.